Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie. And on this episode, we are doing the 73rd Best Picture winner, Gladiator. Gladiator is a 2000 historical epic drama directed by Ridley Scott, which I did not realize, but after I, because I actually didn't look up background until after I watched the movie this time. Wow, you went in blind. That's like new for you. <laughs> I do it sometimes. It kind of just depends on what I'm feeling. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't realize it was Ridley Scott. And then I saw that he had directed it. And I was like, that makes some of like the look and feel of the film make a lot more sense. Yeah, for sure. It was written by David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson. Uh, it stars... Russell Crowe as a Roman general turned gladiator. There's a lot that happens to make that happen, but turned gladiator who then, you know, fights his way to popularity in order to get revenge on the evil emperor Commodus played by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and then you have Connie Nielsen starring as uh, Lucilla, the emperor's sister. Yeah. I, I don't have a better way to sum that up. It's, We'll get more into the details. It's a revenge story. It is with a shining, pure protagonist that annoys the shit out of me. <laughs> I will say up front, Ian and I were like kind of hesitant going into this one because we were like on its surface, it feels like a movie we might not really like. I don't know like exactly how you felt. I liked it more than I thought I would for sure. Um, I do agree that I think this movie has a particular brand of hero that we have seen that was popular in a lot of our historical epics in the 90s and I guess now into the early 2000s uh, that we don't particularly like because it they're kind of boring and we'll get it more into like why, but I do think a lot of, there were things about this movie that I really, really liked, but I think a lot of the things that I didn't like or that I struggled more with it kind of come back to that like, particular brand of hero yeah it i i couldn't agree more on the hero thing it for me committed the cardinal sin of just being very boring like i i didn't have as much of the kind of interest in the historical aspect of it and the admittedly context for the historical background of it that I think allowed you to take a little more pleasure in some of the things that happened. Yeah. Um, I know this has come up on like previous podcasts before, but like I took Latin for six years in middle school and high school. So like I am a little bit more knowledgeable on some of this stuff, which I have to say, I know we at times potentially unfairly just like roasted Braveheart for historical inaccuracy. This actually was a lot more accurate as far as like details and timelines. And, um, I was reading that, uh, the original concept of it, um, by Franzoni was like, a lot of it was based off of like, um, some older, like, I don't, I don't know if he read them in the original Latin, but like older Latin texts and stuff like that. And like some historical, uh, documented things. So like, I think I did find that some of that really showed, but it was yeah. still boring. <laughs> I, so I also like a good fight more than you do in a movie. So I yeah. did actually really enjoy a lot of the gladiatorial fights. I thought they were 
really well done, uh, well shot. And like, I enjoyed the variety of them. I didn't feel like I was watching the same fight over and over and over again. I felt like they were definitely like varied. Oh, but I, but yeah, we'll get more into it. We go into like structure and hero stuff, but yeah, I really, I really wanted to care a lot more about Maximus as a human. And I think that was the main issue with the gladiatorial pieces for me. They on their face were entertaining, but by the second to last one, the last one was engaging because at that point we finally were bought in, but two or three of them were interesting, did have some stakes, but again, didn't have the connection to the characters that would make it truly a like nail biting sort of thing. And the type of hero we're dealing with, we know that they're going to prevail in some way or the other. So like, it's kind of a a written prophecy that he's going to survive these fights. So it's a, yeah. Yeah. I guess we, we did have to, we did have to, we didn't know that he had to at least make it to the final one exactly uh, for the showdown. But like, you know, we've, there are movies that like, we still know that and it's still like more fun and engaging, but we'll get, yeah, let's, let's hold off. We'll get into that. So other background stuff, uh, Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerard did the score, which is hilarious. Cause again, I didn't do background before I watched the movie and there were points where I literally have in my notes. I was like, this score is very pirates of the Caribbean. The other really cool thing that he did is it, are you familiar with, um, Gustav Holst's the planet suite? No, I don't think so. There is a movement in there, uh, Mars Bringer of War, and much of the beginning soundtrack in that first set of battles has a very similar feel to that movement. And so uh, it's a, it's a it's extremely unique rhythm in there that you'll hear in the strings if you listen to it with a it, like kind of a belting building horn line. So I'll have to send that to you because it's it's uncanny. Yeah. Okay, because there were a couple points with the score where I thought it it started to feel a little too schmaltzy. Oh, and conflicted in a very similar way that Glad, uh, sorry, uh, Chariots of Fire and Vangelis did in certain parts where the soundtrack didn't meet the vibe, in my opinion. Yeah, it was like a weird switch in the vibe that like kind of took me off guard. But other than that, I will say like in like during the gladiator again during the gladiatorial fights during like the battles generally, I quite liked the score. Oh yeah, it's it was. Well, it was enough for me to note, but not enough to totally spoil the movie beyond how it already had been for me. So (laughs) this is a mixed bag. (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely mixed on it, but I think this is going to be a Maggie likes it more than Ian uh, one. Okay, I'll go ahead and go into like awards and other nominations. Then we can just kind of like jump into the movie and any other like background or tidbits I have. We'll just sprinkle through. Let's do it. Other than Best Picture, so Ridley Scott is nominated for Best Director. Uh, Russell Crowe does win Best Actor, which I would need to look and see, like, who else is nominated that year. I will say he does an awful lot with not a lot. It's still not, like, my favorite performance of his, but, like... (sighs) So Tom Hanks and Castaway was also nominated that year. Oh, no. It goes to Tom Hanks. I'm sorry. Tom Hanks made me weep over the loss of a volleyball. It goes to him. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I understand the nomination. Here's Joaquin Phoenix's performance in this movie is unhinged. He is chewing every piece of scenery he can get his hands on. And I like I'm here for it. Like he just absolutely went for it on this character. 
in a way that was like so disturbing by the end. Like the character got it originally I was like, oh, our villains look really interesting. I really like this villain. And then our villain crossed a threshold where I was like, well, now I'm just creeped out by the villain. But uh, Joaquin Phoenix went for it. And I have to respect that. I did not like the very beginning. It I felt his performance was super flat, like full on pancake. But you get into some of the later scenes, especially starting with his first meeting with the Senate, where I think he is able to kind of branch out a bit. Was it nuanced? Maybe. I don't know. But he had some uh, insane in- expressions. So it was nominated for best original screenplay. Doesn't win. Nominated for best art direction. Doesn't win. I respect the art direction nomination. I was actually very into the art direction. Yeah. And honestly, that one, I'm I'm not sure that I'm super happy it didn't win because that. Oh, sorry. It was crouching tiger hidden dragon that did oh yeah i respect that yeah yep i get that i'm good (laughs) nominated for best cinematography but doesn't win again i was actually a big fan of a lot of the cinematography i had some massive qualms with large swaths of it i know you and i were not a fan of the random slow-mo i did think it was overused and not used appropriately but as far as like the shots in general i was very into especially everything shot within like the palace um and the the triumph bit was mm-hmm. like felt it felt both so grand and so like cold and brutal um and again i thought that the fights in the coliseums were shot very well so i'm actually pretty down with that cinematography nom yeah but again lost to crouching, crouching tiger, tiger hidden, hidden dragon, dragon. <laughs> which i'm very okay with i saw crouching tiger hidden dragon for the first time last year uh i went and saw it in theaters with a couple of coworkers. um that movie is an absolute blast and i loved every moment of it well it was nominated for best picture so i'm gonna ask you I at know. the end whether you think it should have taken it <laughs> i know i know um it wins for best costume design which i'm actually very on board with yeah when you compare it to something like uh Oh, no. Braveheart, where all Braveheart, the costumes looked so cheap. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I was like, again, I was reading up because I also find it interesting, like, you know, what was really accurate historically, what wasn't. Obviously, we're not, as Ian likes to say, we're not watching a documentary. I understand that you might make different choices based on, like, you know, what might look good on camera or be, like, good for story or also because of something like the Tiffany effect, which is, like, my one of my favorite things which is the concept of people will think things are historically inaccurate even if they are because of their perception of what the past is and obviously a lot of what we think about like with gladiators and stuff not just from this movie but from the quote-unquote sword and sandal epics of like the 50s and 60s like a Spartacus or a Ben-Hur which I'll be honest I was a little surprised there wasn't as much overt Ben-Hur illusions as I expected there to be they did pull some chariots in, but not in the same way. It wasn't a race. <laughs> nothing nothing beats. Like, I'm sorry. The b- chariot race in Ben-Hur is one of the greatest action sequences of all time. Like, it's so good. Um, if you don't want to watch the whole movie, that's fine. Go watch the chariot scene from Ben-Hur. In, in fact, I'll go out and say, don't watch the whole movie. Just watch the chariot <laughs> just watch scene. The I also like the, one, the scene on the ship, though, with the ship combat, the rowing. Yeah, yeah, that's That's a fair. good scene, too. But uh, yeah, so win for costume design, I'm actually very on board with. Um, I want to talk about some specific costume design choices with the gladiatorial fights that I thought were like really, really good. 
it was nominated for best film editing, but loses. I wasn't the biggest fan of the editing. So to me, this is where you start seeing at least in, we'll call them the best picture winners editing come together. That is like a precursor to the Michael Bay esque actiony, like erratic editing style, or at least that's, I, I don't know a better way to call it, but this to me seems like an initial influence in some of the action scenes where like, I understand you want to create this unmoored erratic mood with the editing, but I also want to be able to follow the characters. Right. The fight. So there's a, a balance there to be able to pull that off without just making it gibberish. And this aired kind of more on the gibberish side of that line at times for me. So I do think we're also entering an era where we get less or the is crossfades that I'm thinking of, but we get less of like the, you have like an object and then you fade into a similar object or you do it sometimes with a sound, which like I really like. I think we had some very notable instances of it in Titanic that we pointed out with like look like the ghost mm-hmm. front of those sunken ship underwater into the actual prow of the ship. Like I love that kind of editing and we're hitting a period where I think you don't see that as much. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, so not the biggest fan of the editing, but I think that also was probably influenced by some of the structure of the writing. So um, Zimmer is nominated for Best Original Score. Um, I don't know what he loses to. Like I said, I mostly liked the score. Uh, Nominated, or no, wins for Best Sound, which I have to say, the sound mixing, we're also hitting the era where uh, dialogue is mixed too low well and is it mixed too low or is it like in absolute terms or mixed too low for a home viewing setting that's a great point i'm gonna say absolute terms because i want to go there because <laughs> there is there um, probably a little bit of both. oh no i'm gonna forget this sound editor's i'm in name. required i'm in required subtitle territory now. <laughs> i did have to turn it up um but there is a sound editor on tiktok who i am killing myself for not knowing her her screen name but talks about things like dynamic range when it comes to sound and that often is why at least in a home setting when you don't have the full expanse of a theater sound setup things are way too soft but if you don't have the softs you also don't hit hit the contrast with the louds and so there's this like yeah tension there to make sure that everything is at the right volume to give the right effect for, you know, like the hits in the the height of the battle versus the really quiet moments. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that my sound yeah. setup is particularly good. And oh, mine's not good. <laughs> so it could very well just be my sound setup. I have setup. considered starting to listen uh with a decent set of headphones. So we'll we'll have to see if I do that next time. But I have to sacrifice screen. <laughs> so I yes, because I do that sometimes where I'll watch on my computer because my head I have good headphones versus watching on my TV where it's obviously just coming from my TV. And my I need to replace my TV. My TV's very old at this point. So yeah, I I am also with you there. Um and I was definitely spoiled growing up because we had surround sound. <laughs> Yeah, I do not. I I did finally invest in a bargain entry level sound bar, which is marginally better than the TV speakers. (laughs) We're so qualified to be movie podcasters. (laughs) We have all the best equipment. Um, 
And it also wins for best visual effects. Was it up against Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon for that? It was not. Really? Um, visual effects, I felt like, was fine. I mean, we're we're early CGI at this point, and I actually thought it was pretty good. Well, and didn't they like increase the height of the Coliseum in their models to something that was like something more or quote unquote original. That was still too small for the Roman Coliseum. Well, not, not the like diameter, but like the overall height added on some additional layers or something. I, I don't know yeah, if I'm yeah. just well, and they, they also, they, they built out a lot of sets and stuff too, uh, which I think helped. Like my favorite CGI is a mix yeah. of practical and CGI. I think that always looks better and is going to hold up better as well. Um, so I will say in general, like I thought visual effects pretty good. A lot of fake blood, a lot of gruesome deaths. They were like campy though. They were and they weren't. <laughs> are, are you thinking about the head in the very beginning getting thrown onto the battlefield? <laughs> That opening with the battle, actually, that was like really creepy in a really effective way. Should we just start? Well, let me say what else was nominated that year and then let's roll into that first battle because I actually do want to talk about it. Um, so Gladiator, obviously, uh, Chocolat is nominated. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which again, what a fun time. Um, Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. I find Aaron Brockovich's presence on this list super interesting because that doesn't to me strike as a best picture film on its face. But when I went back and thought about it, Julia Roberts was amazing. She's great one. And she was huge at the time. I've actually not seen Aaron Brockovich, but I know it's like a big cultural touchstone. Well, great acting. The story is compelling and horrifyingly pretty true. Um, Real. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it kind of makes sense when, when again, you, you delve past the surface of it, but yeah, I, would I have preferred to watch that over gladiator? Yes. Does that mean gladiator was bad? No, just disappointing. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. Let's go into that first battle. Let's, let's talk about something that I actually was not disappointed oh, in. I, I was into it for this first battle. This first battle, I was like, oh, okay. We did get some title cards kind of setting, setting. We did get some title cards establishing setting. I was like, setting the setting. And then I was like, that doesn't work. Um, establishing setting. Uh, and then we just kind of rolled into this uh, battle setup, which we're on. We're in a Gaul. Germania. It's Germania. Gaul's France. Somewhere in different. like mainland Europe away from Rome yeah. and Spain. <laughs> yeah. So we've got, um, battlefield set up. We've got our onagers. Um, I think that's what they were, but, uh, we've got that. We've got our general Maximus. We're kind of introduced to him. It's clear that like Things have not been going well on the edge of of the empire. We have Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius. I love Richard Harris. Um, and there's you know getting ready for this big battle. The moment where I was like, okay, I'm actually really into this is when you have the uh, leader of like one of the Germanic tribes show up, and it's just the one guy. After you have the single cavalry horse ride through with the headless body yeah. that it takes you a minute to realize is headless. 
Oh yeah. Well, and I, I yeah. do want to highlight the way that they colorized everything in this. Cause it, it gives that very cold, dark downtrodden, like this is a high stakes thing. It's very serious. And then you contrast that with the bright red of the headless man's blood on the snow white horse. Like yeah. it, and like the cloaks, the red cloaks, and then the purple of Marcus Aurelius and like his retinue. Um, we get our first Maximus speech, uh, which is him kind of rallying the cavalry. I like this first speech, but then so I feel like the movie kind of expects this first battle and scene to do a little too much heavy lifting on the character side of Maximus because we get this rallying speech from him and then we get some interaction between him and Lucilla once she and Commodus arrive, him and Commodus and him and Marcus Aurelius. But like not quite enough for me to get like a super good sense of his character. And we're like clearly shown he's in a leadership position and they talk about like how he's such a good general. But like, I don't know. I wanted to see maybe a little bit more warmth between him and his soldiers to get like a little bit better sense of like, not only is this guy good in battle, but he has a lot of like natural charisma and leadership. Um, basically, I just got that like this man does not want to be here and he wants to go home to his farm, which is fine. But I just wanted a better sense of like personality yeah, to carry me through more of this first section than it did, I think. And that really I, I want to put a pin in this, but the amount of explanation that they give us after the battle, but before his wife and kid are fridged, like, why are you telling me all this instead of demonstrating how good a general he is on the battlefield somehow? Well, I think that's what they were doing, trying to do with that first fight in the rallying speech. But I didn't think it hit is, I think, my problem. And I mean, given what I was reading about the script and how it was the barest of bare bones that Russell Crowe was pissed about, like, yeah, uh, I think I saw a quote from him that was like to paraphrase something like there wasn't a lot of character on the page. And I was like, we noticed Russ. We know. Yeah. And that didn't mean that he didn't do as best as he could with what was there. But Agreed. Agreed. I but like, yeah, there is. And it starts after this first section. Once we have Commodus, mm -hmm. you know, who is the emperor's son, wants to be emperor. Um, Marcus Aurelius says that he doesn't think Commodus would do a good job. He wants to appoint Maximus his successor. And then, of course, Commodus finds out he kills Marcus Aurelius. After this point, there's a pretty long period of time where Maximus says almost nothing. And I was like, but he's our main character. <laughs> I need him to like do things, communicate with other characters in some way, shape or form so that I can get more of who he is as a person and why people should like and follow him. I think like, yeah, I definitely think that there was just a lot put on like but his character is a general. So like Stoic. people follow him. And I was like, but why? <laughs> Charismatic without speaking. Yeah. Which, and I, and again, like it's a part that I know 
Russell Crowe as an actor can play because, and this might come up again, but after watching this, I was kind of like, you know, not to say that this is like a bad historical epic or something, but I was like, I want to watch like a really good, more strongly character driven historical epic. So I put on Master and Commander, which is a Russell Crowe movie from like three years after this, where again, he's playing like a captain of a ship. It's a leadership role from like, I guess, a military point of view as well and everything. But like that character is just clearly more internally motivated and like better written and has more of a charisma. So it's like definitely a part he can do. I think this is the writing. I totally agree. That's like failing us on this character. Mm -hmm. Um, And agreed, stoic characters just aren't that fun to watch because apparently I did a quick Google on stoicism for a refresher and I understand why they went this route at, because it was a popular philosophy at the time period. Marcus Aurelius as an emperor was like known as like the philosopher emperor was like known for his belief in stoicism. And honestly, I think the four virtues of stoicism make for good leaders. Unfortunately, they don't make for entertaining watching because it's wisdom, courage, temperance, or moderation and justice. Temperate heroes aren't fun. They're really not. <laughs> They're really not fun. They're hard yeah. to follow. And I think it's because like that external versus internal motivation too. So anyway, yeah. So uh, last thing to to go back to the events of the movie, I want to mention about that first scene. Felt it was generally compelling. I hate, 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 hated the slow-mo. And I think for me, it was the almost like jittery, like frame, frame, frame slowed down where it was really clear that it was filmed on some sort of frame rate that wasn't designed to be displayed that slowly. It was just very jerky. Didn't like it. Pulled me out of the whole thing in a way I was not expecting. And it doesn't mean that I need buttery smooth everything all the time, but the stylistic effect didn't really make me look any closer at the horrors of battle on the screen. I would agree. I saw that use of it in the battle sequences like compared to um, the opening of Saving Private Ryan. And to be fair, I have not watched Saving Private Ryan in a while, uh, mostly because- It's brutal. (laughs) It makes me so sad. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good, but it makes me so sad. Um, But I remember that being like, I don't even know if it's necessarily smoother, but feeling more in line with like, how the movie was shot and feeling just more purposeful or something I just remember it working better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that this was one of the places too, near the end where we get the really blurred out shots. The soundtrack went very nostalgic, had some longing to it. And, and I was confused I was by that. So confused because we're, we're still in the heat of battle here. Like, are we, what, what are we supposed to be taking from this? Yeah. So I liked my little, pirates kind of bit a little bit more that felt more in keeping so uh, with like a battle so yeah no no no. i'm with you i'm with you a little little all over the place there some really great highs and some very confusing parts but where where things get but overall oh yeah was entertaining for sure i am entertained at this point um (laughs) (laughs) we do get an introduction to commodus after the battle has finished and it's the scene really quickly with him and his older sister in the caravan. Um, 
very clear early on, and I think this is a testament to Joaquin Phoenix's performance here, that he's kind of a, he's got a little bit of a cold personality that is excited about the prospect of power, which I think is a key like narrative element there. Excited about the prospect of power and a hundred percent convinced that he deserves it. Dangerous, dangerous thought. Um, and we get little hints of like Lucilla, the sister kind of being like the only one who can sort of like temper him in a lot of ways and maybe like not completely like steer him, but like maybe soften some of that. Like, yeah, well, I think this is to, to move uh, just a few scenes ahead here when Lucilla is actually talking with her father, there is an interesting back and forth where he's talking about like what a Caesar she would have made. And like he recognizes that she is arguably the meritocratic heir <laughs> to the uh, emperorship. Which we also get a hint of with one of the senators, which I do want to talk about the first scene with Commodus and the senators, because that was the scene where I like was like, mm-hmm. okay, this is int- like, I really liked that scene. Um, there is an implication where one of the senators is like, no, 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 for you. Yes. Like we're like people just have so much more confidence in her um, than they do Commodus. Yeah. So there was another fun line there between uh, Aurelius and her where it's let us pretend I'm the loving father and you're the good daughter or something along those lines, which I thought was great that there's so much in that line right there about both of them. And I wish we could have delved a little bit more into that because there is, I would say, generally Aurelia, Marcus Aurelius is portrayed a little bit more as kind of like this flawless emperor. Um, but that line like hints at something of like, and I, he says something kind of, I think, to Commodus right before Commodus kills him as well, of like having this feeling of having failed his mm-hmm. son and being like, you're not a good person, like you're not capable of being the Caesar and like, that's just as much my fault as it is yours. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of like, I wish we could have delved a little bit more into that, but like, yeah, those were some like interesting little hints at like, there is more. Well, and I do wish that, but I also don't wish that. And what makes me say that is the painfully academic speeches he's giving to Maximus when he is telling Maximus that he is going to be, who should be the next emperor. Like it felt like such a preachy rambling of an old man who has not the luxury of time anymore, but has lots of regrets. And I'm like, this movie, Ian, this movie likes a speech with a capital S like they like a speech. Um, I will say it was Richard. I know. I will say it's Richard Harris giving the speech, though. So, like, I'm going to be a little bit more forgiving because of my love of Richard Harris. But, uh, yeah, I you know, also Maximus is just like, I don't want any of this. And I was like, I do respect a reluctant hero, but I need you to be funnier about it if you're going to be. Well, <laughs> I like my heroes. I don't like a stoic hero. I I like a hero that's either super savvy or full himbo. Maximus is somewhere in the middle and it's I, not a good moderate. Yeah. I will say my, lo- my, 
early on, as soon as I, I, I had the scene, I was like, oh, God, no, not the pure and reluctant hero trope. <laughs> so, yeah, there is there is something. And I let's just go ahead and skip to kind of that first scene after Commodus has killed Marcus Aurelius, where he's basically saying, like, Maximus, will you follow me? And there's also been like some earlier stuff where we've established Commodus has a lot of tension with the Senate and is kind of trying to get Maximus on his side a little bit. But like, here's here's where I like kind of had an issue with this, as you call it, the, the pure of heart, like noble, guileless hero of like, he's so principled. He's just going to be like, no, give me my sword. I'm riding, I'm getting the army. Like we're going against Commodus. And I was like, dude, you are in Commodus's camp right now. Like play it smart. Pledge yourself to him, then stab him in the back and start a revolution. Like I just, he's a general. And he threw out all of his understanding of tactics and strategy in that one moment. Yes. Like, yes. Like, oh, I was like, don't be so noble. You're stupid. Like, that was where I was kind of like, don't know. And I just this this is one of those cut off your nose to spite your face moments that pretty much colored the rest of the film for me. And at this point, I was like, well, we're going to get through this. We're going to find the good parts. But I can tell I'm not going to care about this character in a way that I'm going to need to to actually have these emotional hits work. He engages a little bit in plotting toward the end. But I like I just I don't know. I wanted to see like the savvy so much sooner. Like he just the character just feels a lot like a shell that like they're like, no, but cheer for him because he's noble. And I'm like, but he's boring. <laughs> in real life i would love a stoic honorable noble guileless leader in a movie though i was not entertained i'm gonna continue to like use that quote by the way so get ready <laughs> sam it's a problem when i have maximus up on my screen being like are you not entertained and my response is like eh, kind of and mine was no <laughs> So if there is more personality to Maximus and I, I like feel more connected with him and feel like he's more connected to other characters that he interacts with, then I think like I think a lot of my problems with the movie are fixed by that, honestly. Yeah, totally agree. Or it becomes a political drama and that is a movie I would watch. <laughs> it does a little bit more at the end. So. Um, yeah. So let's talk about his escape, um, and the fridging of the wife and child, which I did read was done because someone was like, when they were revamping the script was like to give him more motivation. And I was like, that's a problem. If you're like, I need to kill off other characters to give this character motivation. That means your character is not internally motivated and rather flat. And they tried so hard to show how much he loved his family with these like interesting dream cut sequences and the way that he has their figurines and it, it, the figurines I thought was cute. Yeah, that one was, I got very bored. I got very bored with the like weird dream slash nightmare sequences slash maybe that's what was actually yeah, happening. I don't I, know. Uh, but yeah, not, not a fan did love the additional kind of battle fight scene when he escapes his killing. And the, the line about the frost that was on the good. blade. The people guarding him are stupid. They were so, okay, they knew what he was capable of. Anyway, it's fine. Lots of people making stupid mistakes. He travels to his home in Spain. It was a cool montage. 
yes, the montage was really cool. I think this was one of the few times where I was like kind of cool with a little flashback because you can tell he's like fading about to fall off the horse and then he has the flashback and that like gives him the energy to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like kind of cool with that one. Uh, but then they kept doing it and they were really long. There were many indulgent moments in the early part of this that I think were too indulgent. And agreed. They took away from more interesting stuff. later. And the movie felt, I'll be completely honest. It, it was two and a half hours, which is not short, but it felt like three hours in my mind. So it's, there was some snappiness that I needed earlier on to get this set up, but that's, that's my own yeah. preference. I did. I'm a little torn. Cause I do think that they did try to take the time with setting up a lot of these characters and stuff. I just don't think they set them up in the best, most efficient way. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, I think they were trying to take the time to do it, which I appreciate, but I just don't think they did so effectively. Now the scene where we get the implied killing of his wife and kid, that was very Jojo rabbit. Actually. Yeah. Well, and the, the way that they filmed the soldiers coming in on hooves and his son running to like meet who he thought it was, was his father, like the violence in it was astounding and you you felt it to a point again these are concepts more more than characters at this point which yes is absolutely kind of i think the downfall of maximus's motivation overall um but he does get back and of course has the breakdown as you expect and is I presume captured. I was so confused as to how he got. I don't know how he, I don't know how he gets from his farm to somewhere in Northern Africa. Yeah, I don't either. It, it that to me was such a non sequitur that I, I was super confused. So all of a sudden he's fighting. Like I mm, didn't like it. Did not like it. And the, I, I think the, problem with the motivation being his wife and kid for revenge is we also don't see the revenge come out at all in this next set of scenes it's just pure dejection he's refusing to actually fight during the quote-unquote tryouts for uh this fighting ring i have a note with that where i was like what point is he trying to make no clue like he seems and i I I don't know if he's supposed to be just like lost or something, but like there is like a weird thing where I was like, why is he even trying at all to stay? Like, like I don't know. Like, again, because it's all externally motivated. And at this point, Commodus is not right in front of him and he has no road to Commodus. I was like, well, why is he doing anything? Like I needed more internal motivation. I also this is the section where I wanted to start seeing him show some more natural leadership and bond more with the other gladiators starting earlier. Um, There's the scene right before they go into the first arena battle, which again, I want to, I do want to praise these battle scenes for being, there's several of them in the gladiator arena. No fight is no two fights are the same. They're all very different concepts in this first one there. You have two people chained together, each fighting these like, more seasoned gladiators, but there's a bit before they go out where the guy who's standing in line in front of Maximus wets himself and is like clearly so scared. And I just really wanted Maximus to give him like a few words of a pep talk or something as if to establish 
that this man is a natural leader and he cannot help but lead and inspire. And I think that would have gone a long way or have empathy for his fellow soldier. Like, I do think that would have gone a long, long way and more reasonably establishing these friendships and relationships Mm -hmm. and setting him up to be a leader and like a popular figure. I wanted him to have more flair. I know he does the, are you entertained, but I wanted him to like play more to the crowd, maybe even see him kind of enjoying the adoration a little bit more, like have that kind of be a little bit of a but thing. But he's a, he's can't enjoy the spotlight. It's against his purity. <laughs> so I want him to struggle. So have him struggle with that. Like have him struggle have with that a little bit. It would have been really fun. And I do also kind of going into that, like wanting to see those connections more and starting early on um, with the character of of Juba. I wanted like the only thing those two ever seem to talk about is like their wives and kids and their family and like missing them, but not on what seems to be like a super meaningful level. There's a little bit about like the, Oh, do you think you'll see them like in the afterlife and everything? But I wanted, I don't know. I wanted to see them connect more like it. The connection between those two characters felt kind of superficial and I wanted it to be a little bit more. I wanted to see them maybe like laugh a little bit more together. Like, and I'll be honest to get way ahead of ourselves. He, he basically sacrifices himself with the rest of the troop of the gladiators. Juba makes it out, but like, but why did they do that? (laughs) Exactly. That's why I'm like, show me, start establishing these like friendships and trust and his leadership and, you know, inspiration potential earlier on. So that at the end, when all of these people are willing to die for him and many do, Mm -hmm. I believe it. And that feels like it counts for something or that people are like trusting him more to lead them, Mm -hmm. you know, in a later fight that we'll talk about that I really like. But yes, this first gladiatorial fight. Great. I also want to highlight something that they continue to do with the costuming that I think is brilliant. Our hero And many of like, you know, the other gladiators with him are not wearing masks and helmets. The enemy gladiators have full helmets that fully cover their faces and make them seem almost inhuman, which is both scarier and also makes their very violent deaths anonymous, like less gut wrenching and anonymous because they don't feel fully human. Whereas our care, our main character very rarely has a helmet on. So he feels more human. And then the time he does put the helmet on, it's like the representation of him being like, no, this is who I am now. I just am gladiator. Uh, That is cool. I hadn't noticed that, but yeah. (laughs) So there is, um, throughout this particular sequence, we are introduced to Proximo, who is the kind of, I'm going to use this very lightly. The coach of the fighters, <laughs> more like the owner of the slaves who are forced to fight. Um, but who was previously a gladiator. Um, and then when his freedom from Marcus Aurelius was given the sword. Of wood. Yeah. So I, I think really two, two main standouts after that first fight, there is another fight where all of a sudden Maximus is way more adept, way more into it, which I thought was a bit of a zero to 100 situation. He he went from this reluctance very quickly, too quickly into fully in. And that's when he gives that, you know, iconic line. Are you not entertained? Um, I'm not entertained. Uh, 
But the other scene is Proximo and Maximus talking about, you know, making the crowd love you and potentially getting to Rome. Um, and all of a sudden, I think Maximus is given his path to Commodus to exact his revenge. Yeah. So I wanted to see him, you know, be a little bit, have a little more flair on that path. Um, like, yeah, he's a good fighter, but like, I don't know. I wanted to see more crowd work from Maximus because even though Are You Not Entertained is like belligerent at the crowd. <laughs> so I don't know. I just wanted to see. Yeah, I wanted to see a little little bit more of that uh, that charisma. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the scale of all of this stuff and the set design are astounding. Great. Like even the intro into the or the lead into the first fight where they're walking under all of this red yarn with dripping blood and like the uh, it's violent. Yeah. And the red's supposed to be a lucky color. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, that that bit I again and the cinematography is like it's yeah, tight. I liked it for the most part. It's It was pretty darn good. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Commodus. Yeah. So kind of interspersed with those scenes of Russell Crowe's character, we get Commodus's side of things. So he he comes to Rome as the new his triumph. Uh, yeah, as the new emperor. I love that they have him in this purple and black, like very villainous colors. Well, purple is the color of the emperor and like all the senators would have the purple stripes and everything. But I do I think it is very important to point out he is wearing almost exclusively purple and black until the final but it's also like sure purple is that sign of power and and uh for lack of a better term royalty but there's something about the way that they made everything so cold that you really get the feel for his villainry yeah everything with him especially if it's in the palace is very cold feeling and like almost a little sparse in a way like I don't know I it's hard to describe but it was very effective in setting the tone but the soundtrack in this era area was so confusing because <laughs> it was Agreed. triumphant we got the nostalgic bit again but it was like nostalgia triumph like it wasn't I wanted an undercurrent of sinister that I wasn't getting yeah so I it's the the music in and of itself was good. The feel of the music compared to what we were seeing was not. And it's only like at a couple of places where that happens, which is why I was like, what? Very obvious places. Yeah. Um, so it I, I, the first scene with him meeting with the Senate folks, though, is <laughs> kind of great. It's really great um, where. You know, we talked about Marcus Aurelius talking a lot in this like big philosophy. It's like Commodus does it too, but on a completely different line of thinking around like how kind of this, he starts hinting at this idea of like this divine right to rule, um, which like wouldn't have been unusual or anything for like an emperor to say, but like, yeah, it is in stark contrast to Marcus Aurelius and is a Old tact to take with the Senate. It is interesting they have him with a sword, though, because it, it it does create a clear like power hierarchy in that particular scene. And I love that they he started seated. Yeah, we saw him practice with the sword, so we know he is a capable fighter. 
And I think some of the directing there, especially with the way they blocked the scene was, was pretty interesting how he started seated in that kind of more powerless position when the one Senator, um, Oh shoot. What is that Senator's name? Is it Gracchus? I, the one who was spearheading the coup. Yes. Gracchus. Probably Gracchus. Um, and then all of a sudden he stands up, has the sword kind of behind his head, framing his face, like taking that power back. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Phoenix is absolutely like going for it. I feel like the actor who plays Gracchus, I don't remember who it is, but he's doing really well. Uh, Connie Nielsen as Lucilla, like her reactions and managing of that scene is like really good. And to like get Commodus to leave as things are starting to escalate. Um, and then kind of the recognition from Gracchus of like, you're actually the capable one here. And like, you're the one I actually trust to like do stuff because Commodus is very like, well, no, the people should just love me. And like, I don't want to be bothered with this day-to-day administrative stuff. And they're like, well, a plague recently swept through and like, we have like shit that needs to be governed yeah, and like taken care of. And I'm over here like once again women doing the work that nobody <laughs> i know so i i wish they had leaned into that with her character a bit more because even early on she was portrayed as being quite savvy i think she still is savvy and capable in a lot of ways i think it just hits a point where commodus is so far down his spiral that like no one can pull him back even her and then she finds herself in a very dangerous situation especially when he has the leverage of her son who she very much cares about uh but i do i would have been more fun to see more of that but to see her be able to do a little bit more before things went south for her um i do want to talk about there is a conversation between the two of him where he introduces the idea of the games and doing 150 days worth of games because you know there there is a latin phrase i think it was the satirist juvenile who uh, started it, but it's like uh, panamet kirkuses or kirkum, uh, which is bread and circuses, which is the idea of if you feed the populace and you keep them entertained, they won't rise up against you. And that's why they also have the scene where they're literally passing out loaves of bread later. But you have Commodus talking about like, well, why did they love my father? And she's like, well, they he brought them victories. Um, and the idea of like, why do they care about these victories in these battles? They weren't there. They didn't participate. And she's like, it gives them the illusion of greatness. And I loved that little speech and that exchange and kind of this understanding of Commodus doesn't have a war to fight. So he's going to give them the closest thing he can. Mm -hmm. Gladiatorial show. Exactly. Which is a show and a reminder of battles from the past and make them feel kind of the echoes of that victory. Um, I love that speech because it shows the machinations of both Commodus and Lucilla's also understanding of how that works. And it also means that the villain is now building a platform and a box that is later going to like he's building his own trap effectively. At a macro level, I like it. I think there were some specific lines in there that I kind of rolled my eyes at because what was it? Maybe it was Gracchus who said something along the lines of uh, you bring them death and they will love him for it. Like I, that's there's some I don't know. I kind of like that context one. to me. It, it felt like 
a hollow, it had a hollow weightiness to it, like uh, trying to be like really highfalutin and like strategic when the character of Commodus that doesn't feel like him. So I don't know. Oh, see, I think it's very him. I think Commodus is very much intentionally doing that. I do think it's not the strongest thread in this movie, but I do think there is some critique of the idea of violence as entertainment. I think they could have gone potentially a little bit harder in that by making you care more about the gladiators themselves. Um, and I think that's a character development issue. But I do think that like that line from Gracchus and stuff is the idea of like, they're going to love him because he's bringing them like this violent entertainment. In a different film, I would agree with you. <laughs> I think in context. I think it's there. I just don't think it's executed as well because of the character development issues around the gladiators and Maximus. Again, if you fix those, I think a lot more of this movie lands for me. Would for me too, honestly. It's because it, at this point, like we're we're setting up the first meeting of Commodus and Maximus after Commodus thinks that Maximus is dead, and so like I should be really excited to see this. I am not excited. I am just like, okay, they're gonna meet. <laughs> no, here's where this this got me because up to this point I was like, but we're only halfway through the movie and I thought this would be the finale. So I was like, where are we going to go from here? I actually liked where we went from here a lot more than I liked the build up to it. I agree that it got better. This is I think where you start to see the first bit of like its own trappings. I will say I was surprised how quickly they made it to Rome. I kind of expected them to like go to bigger and bigger arenas in some sort of montage and they just ended up in Rome very suddenly. And then I was also confused because I was looking at the Colosseum and I was like, but that Col it can't be in Rome. That Colosseum's too small. <laughs> well, it was also mostly CGI, right? Well, it was a one third scale set and then they CGI'd it to make it tall. And I was like, oh, that's why it felt too small. So th they get there. We get some of Proxim Proximus's, you know, remembering the good old days as it were. But we move quickly into the first gladiator battle with the entire group of, I guess they are gladiators at this point. So they are gladiators. Um, yeah. Um, but there's supposed to be like a reenactment of the battle of Carthage. I love at the end, I'm getting way ahead, uh, that Pro uh, Commodus is like, I, I might be misremembering, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure. But I think Carthage lost. <laughs> <laughs> that is a funny line. That was really that was, funny. That was good. Oh, I was going to say, here's the bit where I think it if there had been more work done to establish Commodus as a leader among the gladiators, it would have helped a mm -hmm. lot is because they're, they have to have like a throwaway line from someone being like, oh, yeah, I know that you're a general from the so-and-so battle. So, yeah, I'll listen to you. And I was like, if he'd had more of those bonds with like more of the gladiators, I think like him being like, OK, listen to me. Here's what we're going to do would have like landed a lot better and felt a lot better. Yeah, we're supposed to make the mental jump that he has the respect and and maybe not adoration, but enough respect for them to follow him and trust. Yeah. I think it's the bigger one. And he'd seemed to have isolated himself a lot thus far. So I didn't quite understand. Um but I do love them like using like kind of the phalanx with like the shields uh grouping together to deal with the cavalry. Um, we have the chariots. I loved the, the, this particular scene. It was, this was 
the most entertaining fight to me. And that is including the very last uh, battle. It was still entertaining, but this, I think, was way more dynamic. I mean, you had a soldier get cut in half by the sword things. It was a lot. That was too much for me. But it was good, I thought. No, I thought it was a good battle overall. Uh, You do have Commodus coming down because he wants to meet this guy, um, realizing that it's Maximus and being like, God, I want to kill him so badly while the crowd is cheering Maximus on. And I, again, this is another thing where I would have liked to see Maximus's crowd work be a little bit higher level. He was on horseback. Like, this is a, a triumphant position to be in. Yeah. I just want just a little bit more. Just work the crowd like a little bit more. Um, because pro- especially considering that Proximo makes that point later where he's like, or earlier in the film where he's like, I wasn't the best fighter but I made the crowd love me and I would have liked, it seems as if Maximus the crowd only loves him because he's good. I wanted to see him like be a little bit flashier. Agreed. Now the fact that we get this tense meeting and Commodus ultimately gives the thumbs up to like, okay, you get to continue to live is a play that I didn't expect at that point, just because of kind of my concept of Commodus at that point as being a bit rash, not the most strategic. I felt he was more strategic through like the first half of the film than I think you did. I thought he really started to lose it towards the end when he starts to spiral. But I did consider Commodus like actually pretty intelligent and conniving. But again, this is where we're starting to see like his you know, intelligent plan of building support is starting to backfire a little bit just because of like the nature of Maximus's popularity, which is again, why I wanted to see Maximus do more crowd work so that it felt more like a plan and like a play against Commodus. So I think what you're seeing Commodus struggle with in that moment is like his very much wanting to kill Maximus for, you know, one being a threat to his political power, but also daring to defy him by living. Yeah. And then struggling with that, but also knowing that his power is like his whole plan and his power base is derived from these games and the people loving him. And so he has no choice but to let Maximus live. Like I see your point. I just struggle to see Commodus that way. And I think it comes down to that first interaction with the the Senate where he seems disinterested in the day to like the extremely important day-to-day things that needed to happen. He can be very smart and conniving and still be a poor leader. Um, and, and we had already established like very early on that Commodus very much disliked the Senate because he saw them as like a, like a shackle on some of his power. So I think him kind of coming into the Senate and trying to be like very lofty and regal seems within character, but also his plan for the popularity is purely to go against the Senate. Maximus is like an, is an issue he thought he had taken care of. Yeah. So let me, let me put a finer point on it. He seems to want to take the easy way out of all of his problems. And usually that involves killing everybody. (laughs) That is the piece where like, I don't see the, the depth of thought there. I don't think that's necessarily the easy way out, but like we have the depth of thought when his conversation with Lucilla, where he's talking about like his entire plan of building popular support and how do you do that? 
you give people the illusion of greatness and victory. So he will make them think that he has made Rome great. Oh, I took that as him stealing Lucilla's idea. (laughs) No, because he starts the conversation and the line of questioning. And then that's her being like, I'm following your line of thought, like her confirming that, like, that is the plan. But he's the one who starts with, like, the questions of, like, why do people, why do these battles matter to them? Like they but weren't why, there. They why weren't didn't so he know so. already? She's like, because they give you a loot. It's a retort. No, Ian, he knows the answer. He's walking her through her, his plan. I took that as That's the way it's delivered. the opposite where he was just no, an insolent child. Absolutely not. No, no, no. He's walking her through his plan. Oh, if so I didn't get that from Woking's that's how, performance. That's how I read. Oh, that's exactly how I read his performance. Mm, okay. And it's her seeing him connect the dots and her being like, oh, this is your plan. I see your point, but that is not at all how I saw it. Oh, that's exactly <laughs> how I saw it. If I had seen it as him like proposing that plan, I would feel very differently. But like, I, it's uh, uh, much of his characterization in this was just such a... A spoiled child giving a tantrum to me is what I was getting. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that he isn't smart. I think I think as he starts to spiral and spiral because his plans aren't working, he gets more and more. You see him get more and more erratic, mm-hmm. so that by the end he's like, "No, no, no, I'll just fight you myself." So we see like the decline. But I think early on he's actually like plotting very carefully. He's also just evil. I mean, yeah, and you can just be evil and. I I think it was you can be evil and dumb or evil and smart. And I think I thought he was evil and dumb. (laughs) I think he's evil and smart. Either way, he's evil because his plan is working. Literally, if it wasn't for Maximus having survived, his plan works. I have no counterpoint because we didn't have the counterpoint. (laughs) But (laughs) even even um, a broken clock is right twice a day. there is a little bit of before the next battle, a, a little bit of I'm going to use this loosely development between him and his fellow gladiators where he's worried about getting poisoned and the other one tries it and pulls a prank on him. A little bit of comedic relief. But like it felt like nothing because like there's no there's no brotherhood here. <laughs> there's no like. Yeah, it has the trappings of it without the development of it. Yeah. So the next battle with Titus the Gaul is great. I do think they use they did use real tigers, it looks like, and I don't love that. Yeah, it was 2000. Um <laughs> It was 2000. We still don't love that. Um but yeah, this is a really so this is the first battle after Commodus knows who he is. And you can see Commodus here is like, well, he's a gladiator. We'll just have a fight that's ridiculous and he'll just die in the ring. And then they can't, then the people can't be mad at Commodus comes with the territory. Exactly. Cause why would he survive four tigers <laughs> and a mean gladiator man? I do think Commodus could have stacked this more. I guess there's probably an argument of like, if he stacks it too much against him, that it is clearly revenge. But yeah, it's uh you have like the, once again, the, Big hulking gladiator. These gladiators are also bigger than Russell Crowe. So they very much look like visually he the odds are not in his favor. Um, but wearing the like full helmet that fully covers the face makes him look very inhuman. But then they get over to like certain parts of the arena and a trapdoor will open and a tiger comes out. 
yeah, that was a surprise. Absolute surprise for me. But I like the setup there where you see the teams of people who are like hanging on to the chains of the tigers take their positions, which distracts Maximus because he's like, there's something else going on here. And then that starts him off on the battle on the wrong foot because the guy like takes advantage of his distraction. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he prevails, which is the only way that battle was going to go. Um. <laughs> yeah, but it's still good. And Commodus is pissed. Which is funny. It, it, he had this thing about it's been arranged for Maximus's death, and it's, it's not. Now, I loved the interplay at the very end where Commodus gives the thumbs down and Maximus refuses. This was such a good touch, and I was did not expect it. I wasn't sure. I was wondering what Maximus was going to do because I'm like, I see it going either way at that point. And the idea of him not killing the guy. So now he's suddenly Maximus the Merciless. And as Commodus points out later, now if I don't spare Maximus, if Maximus is in that position, then I'm going to be seen as completely unmerciful. And that could turn the crowd against me. So again, it's like all of the things he set up are now becoming like his downfall, the things that are. Yeah, exactly. I do wish that it felt like Maximus not killing the guy was less about him just spiting Commodus and seemed more strategic. Oh, hundred percent. Well, and that, or I refuse to kill somebody who's down in this situation. Like, where is where is the yeah. glory in that? It's the honor, which is I the know. most boring possibility in this context. <laughs> it's the most so boring I, possibility. It's it's the best one for a real person to choose, but for a fictional character, it is the most boring possibility. So there is we get. I think okay. This next the scene with Commodus talking about this afterward, I think encapsulates why that character I just have zero respect for is he seems so whiny. I can see a different reading of him, but I think I didn't say he wasn't whiny. I just think he's a lot <laughs> smarter and like actually had like a thought, a well thought out plan. And then Maximus is the fly in the ointment. And that's why it's driving him so insane. Cause he gets really insane really fast. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but like, that's what, yeah, I'm not, again, I don't think Commodus is a good person. I think he's whiny. I think he's power hungry. I think he should not be in charge. I think he's creepy as fuck. I do think he's smart. <laughs> I think he's, I think he, I think his original plan is very intelligent and laid out and then it goes to shit and he doesn't know how to pivot and he just lets it eat at him because he's not used to having people disobey him at that level. That is, he's definitely not used to people disobeying him, which is interesting when it comes. Oh, no, I can't jump that far ahead. Before we get there, he runs into his old manservant footman. I I don't know, whoever. Oh, Maximus running into Cicero? Not that Cicero. You <laughs> Basically, we had now understand there is support for Maximus more widely enough to hang a coup on as it were. And that's when we get this plot. He, no, I think up until this point has Maximus already refused to meet with Gracchus when Lucilla visited him. I don't, did she try to get him to meet with Gracchus? Cause I don't. Yes. Oh. Yeah. She wanted him like Lucilla goes to see him. 
which I will have to say, I think Lucilla generally very savvy, very smart. We wanted to see more of her. She goes to visit Maximus in person too many times, and that's why she gets caught. I don't like that her downfall is because of a romantic connection to our protagonist. I hate that for her. Yeah, I do. I also hate that for her. Like, just don't go see him in person. You're going to be followed by your creepy ass brother. Like, come on. She goes to see Maximus and it, I think that first meeting, she wants him to meet with Gracchus because she's like, you, again, kind of noting that, but you have the support of the people and that is what Commodus is relying on. That's what his plans are built on. And if you can take that from him, you significantly weaken him. And she wants him to meet with like a person who she's like, there are people who are against Commodus and you should meet with them. And he's like, no, go away. I never want to see you again. I'm not doing your political machinations. I just want my revenge. And I'm like, sir, work with me here. Like this woman gave you a plot on a platter and you said, no, thank you. So, you know, that saying about how the the punchline of the saying is God gave you 17 ways to save yourself and you didn't pick a single one. That is Maximus. That is Maximus right now. Yeah. So anyway, he says no. And then later he's talk. He like runs into Cicero, who like makes it clear there's like support for him. And then for some reason, Maximus is like, actually, I am going to be a part of this plot then, I guess. And like send Cicero to tell Lucilla he actually wants to meet with Gracchus. And they do. I hated that conversation. It took way too little to convince Gracchus. Way too little. Well, Gracchus is Gracchus has already been wanting to get rid of Commodus. For a while. But the trust in Maximus was his sticking point. I don't think he trusts Maximus. I think he trusts Lucilla. I still think it was too easy of a convincing. <laughs> I wanted more pressure. <laughs> I'm making I'm making leaps here. But my guess would be based on the interaction with Gracchus and Lucilla in that first Senate meeting is that he probably isn't so much that he trusts Maximus. He probably trusts Lucilla more. I agree on that point. Which... I'll be honest, when it comes to scheming, I also trust Lucilla more. (laughs) Yeah, I would. I would. But this quickly unravels. As many plots do. When apparently Commodus's nephew, Lucilla's son, mentions some innocuous comment or seemingly innocuous comment about how she and Gracchus have been talking. Leads to this super tense, well-acted well-edited scene between Lucilla and Commodus. With the kid there, too. Says so much. The writing in this was great. Says so much between the lines. And you needed an off-the-wall performance that Joaquin Phoenix is giving in this scene. Like, this this is where you're like, oh, he's losing it. And, like, they're... We've hit the point where absolutely nothing will get in his way. Like we already kind of knew that, but this is like the confirmation of it. I would say generally, not a lot of acting critiques on the on this for me. Woking Phoenix did way more than <laughs> I expected, but like Russell Crowe and Connie Nielsen. Again, are doing I think the best Russell Crowe. <laughs> I think I think Connie Nielsen actually had more stuff character-wise written for her than I think Russell Crowe did. Yeah. Yeah. I think that character is, is better developed than the main, which is like, it's a problem when like your main character is one of the least strongly developed characters. 
Yeah, he is more the concept of revenge in my eyes than the gladiator. But yeah, he does. He does feel more of a concept than a than a human being. But anyway, at this point, we know the plot has been foiled and we get a tense foiling of the plot. This is where the rest of the gladiators begin to throw themselves at the emperor's guards. When Proximo originally is like, I'm not going to let you go. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not risking this for me. Like, I made it out of the gladiator arena. I have money. Now. Like, I'm not risking it. And that's when Maximus drops the like, well, Commodus killed the man who freed you. So now Proximo is like willing to. <sighs> I... Which like, whatevs. Um, that's too tidy. I wasn't fully sold. I wasn't fully sold, but I'm more sold on that than literally all of the other of Proximo's gladiators being like, yeah, no, we'll just fight the Praetorian guard so that you can get out. When I was like, I was like, okay, maybe I'll give it to like Juba and Hagen. Maybe, maybe, but like none of the other ones. Like, yeah, I just like didn't believe that the ties were strong enough. Totally agree. Yeah. You have poor Cicero. Who also dies. Yeah. I mean, they're all part of the plot. They use this, this, it, it was kind of an interesting tie in to the story that Commodus was telling his nephew in the previous scene we just mentioned. They use snakes to presumably off some of the senators. I thought that was a little too on the nose. Well, he's, he's also talking about Anthony and Cleopatra too. Yeah. But again, two on the nose. Also, if you already couldn't kill somebody with swords, why are you leaving it to chance that a snake will bite them? Anyway, <laughs> didn't make sense to me. Um, so uh, we get the final most unhinged scene with Commodus and his sister where he starts to get very incesty. And he gets, he's been he's been kind of incesty and then he gets very incesty. And I was like, why? Why we got it? Why we got to have this? Why? I already hated him enough. I like. I already hated him. Like, we didn't need. Uh, well, no, I was about to call it character assassination. His character has been assassinated. We just didn't need to continue <laughs> to roll around in the gutter. Yeah, it was. It was real gross, and it was like. I think we also had like enough with like his threats to her mm -hmm. son as like kind of like keeping Lucilla in check. Um, but yeah, so you gross didn't like. Um. Let's get into this final battle because first off, the costuming on Commodus, amazing choice. He is in all white, all white armor. And it is like he's already kind of been talking about like, you know, being a god and everything. Like it feels like his full like unhinged ascension. Mm -hmm. um, and he's taunting Maximus you get out into the arena. I love, I love how simplistic this fight is. And I think it's so well shot of just the ring of the Praetorian guards. And Commodus is like, I'm going to fight you. Apparently the emperor Commodus really would fight in gladiator arenas. Now everyone always submitted to him because he was the emperor. And also not all gladiatorial fights were to the death. Actually, a lot of them were not. Um, False Maggie. So a lot of them would news. be like, everybody died. True news. True news. <laughs> Like, that's not a sustainable if you're literally if every time a gladiator fights is to the death, that is an unsustainable form of entertainment, aside from being super unethical. 
I mean, the the Romans were known for their high level of ethics in all things, right? Like all human society always has been. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's for sure. Sorry, I'll stop being not snarky. Now. Always problems with everything. No, but you know what I yeah. mean. Like it's yeah, but but like I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. Now the scene where they're taunting prior, uh, Commodus is taunting Maximus prior to going on though. He does puncture his lung one. So didn't expect a fair fight. We I knew. was like, you sneaky motherfucker. I also didn't expect it, but I'm really here for it. Oh, I expected something. I knew it wasn't going to be a fair fight. Like there was no way. I, I also knew it wasn't, but like that kind of got, but I was like, Commodus, you sneaky bitch. But I think that's also a thing where like, he's evil. He's crazy. He's not stupid. Like, he knows he can't best Maximus in a fair fight. Yeah. Now, there was a line in there, too, where it was uh, death smiles at us all. All that man can do is smile back. Like, that was great. Well, and then Commodus asking, like, oh, who told you that? And he's like, or he says, Commodus says, I hope the man who told you that. I wonder if he did that at his own death. And Maximus is like, you You would would know. know. (laughs) It was your dad. (laughs) That was wonderful. So they're in the circle of the Praetorian Guard. I would like to say that I'm like, they're both going to die. I know both of them are going to die. That is just the only outcome that we're going to have now. But the touch of the Praetorian Guard not helping Commodus is such a condemnation of him as a leader just generally. And the way we move to this visceral fight with fists, just great escalation uh, it starts with swords. Commodus loses his sword. The Praetorian Guard, no one will give him their sword. Um, and he removes a dagger. And then uh, that's when it uh, devolves, yeah, into them just punching the shit out of each other. But I also, like... I don't know. What did what did the emperor think? that how, how Like, how was this going to go? He thought he was going to kill him. He punctured his lung. Uh, like, it's... Uh, He's that far gone, so, Ian. Like he has devolved that much. I love, I, hate I it. love a devolution. <laughs> I love a devolution. I want to watch a character go crazy, and we watched that. Oh, well, we went pretty. He crazy. was very crazy. Um, but like again, I but don't think that- it's like he's crazy. But there's still the part of him that like is a plotter and a schemer, and is like, well, I know I can't win in a fair fight, so I'll puncture his lung. Well, yeah, he he's gonna puncture his lung to like try and win. But like ultimately, at the end of all of this. I'm sitting there just disappointed. I'm just empty. Like this goes back to all of the problems with the characters yeah. of uh, and and the way their motivations, like anything about them. I just didn't care. Well, I think mostly Maximus. I understood Commodus's motivations very clearly. Um, and I think like in general, I would say pretty solid villain. Uh, again, I just like wanted especially like if it's a movie where like, I know there's a good chance the main character doesn't make it through. Like you got to make me care. Like you really got to make me care. And so like, I just didn't like, I cared that Maximus won in the sense that like, I didn't want Commodus to win, but that's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, what, what did we learn here? Revenge is bad being greedy and power hungry is bad like i don't even know if revenge was bad in this movie or revenge is one's downfall i should say like no one gets out alive in that situation this is not groundbreaking like examination of these these 
topics. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I just like, again, I just wish I'd, I just wish I'd cared a little bit more about Maximus. But yeah, loved the final battle. Um, I don't know exactly how I wish the movie had ended. Not the way it did, though. Uh, Lucilla's speech was not a good speech. Um, Maximus has weird, he's like weird floating above the ground energy, which I know the vibe they were going for. It just didn't land for me. Um, we have the shot of the door, which I guess was like supposed to represent like the door to the afterlife for him. Gets to see his fridged wife and kid. They carry him out of the arena. It's I just felt so empty at the end. That is that is my main. I didn't feel I didn't feel a lot at the end. Um, so annoyed. So again, things about it I really, really liked. There were some scenes I thought were great. Um Set design and costuming, very here for it. I thought the fight scenes were really well shot. In general, I liked the cinematography with like a couple small caveats. Um, but uh, really, really let me down on the main character development department and the ending and the pacing. Yeah, I it really did watch like a three and a half hour movie and it was only two and a half hours. I just, and again, I like, I respect that they seemed to be trying to build some setup in the first bit because I also don't like when like I'm not given time to like really care and understand like the conflict in the characters, but I just don't think they spent that time well. Totally agree with that. So anyway, do we want to go into lists? We do. So for me, definitely not a skip it film, um, but is definitely a more on the no side of maybe watch it. <laughs> so I have it down at number 52, which is pretty low. Um, that puts it between Deer Hunter and A Man for All Seasons. So I think as as much as I didn't connect with Man A Man for All Seasons in similar ways that I didn't connect to Gladiator, there was much more character development. And there actually was, in my mind, kind of a just cause to take this stand for. And while in some ways I was still kind of infuriated by this character's decisions to put uh, idealism ahead of his own um, like self-preservation in certain ways, it didn't ring hollow like it did in Gladiator to me. Now, in terms of the comparison to Deer Hunter... um, if I'm being the least generous possible, <laughs> this feels like the writers might have wanted to make a film about gladiatorial fights and then kind of tried to string together a storyline that allowed them to make these gladiatorial fights. Don't have the same ethical qualms as I do with Deer Hunter doing that around, you know, Russian roulette, which was just a full on falsehood. And it seems to be because it seems to be better researched. Exactly. Like, it, it it wasn't just a full on falsehood that took advantage of, you know, an atrocity for it, what entertainment. Um, and I was more entertained by gladiator if I'm being completely honest. Um, but again, not, not a high ranking film for me. So. Yeah, I am um, actually also, I'm going to put it at 52. I do think I still enjoyed it more than you did for sure. I it's right after rain man and right before Hamlet for me. So rain man is definitely a more character centric movie. 
Um, it's definitely like flawed and not one of my favorites, but like there obviously like it is a lot more character driven, uh, which is more my jam. I'm putting it above Hamlet because similar to Gladiator with Hamlet, I find the characters uh very annoying, but I find the cinematography incredibly compelling and like mm-hmm. really visually stunning. Um, I do think Gladiator overall performances are better. I don't like Lawrence Olivia and Hamlet. Um Mostly because he's way too old for the part. Uh, but uh, yeah. And like I said, there were scenes in Gladiator that I really, really liked. Um, it was just kind of the movie as a whole. And I think like to me, like the biggest sticking point is it really does suffer from that like pure, noble, stoic, guileless hero trope that like, again, it's something we saw. We saw it in Dances with Wolves in the 90s. We saw it with Braveheart in the 90s. I think this is, a much, much better film than Braveheart. I will say that. Um, I was very scared going into it because I've often heard it talked about closely with Braveheart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand why, but like, I think this is a much, much better movie than Braveheart. I'm so glad this worked out because I was like, oh no, did I accidentally put it after Braveheart? I did not. Braveheart is way down at number 65. So I am safe. I We just reordered. I can't unorder them right now. <laughs> I have Braveheart a little bit higher than you, but lower, definitely lower than Gladiator. Um, I'm hoping this is something that we like don't carry much further. It seems to have been a very popular style of historical epic hero at the time. And I, there are definitely character tropes that go like come in and out of fashion. Um, as we've seen, there's the period of time in the fifties and sixties that we were like, why do all the male romantic leads suck so much? Why are they all so mean? Well, that's how you get a, get a a wife, Maggie. You just treat them like so mean. They're so (laughs) mean. I'm specifically thinking of Charleston, Charlton Heston's character in, uh, greatest show on earth. So mean. And every woman in that film is like, but I love him. (laughs) Why? Um, anyway. I I'm hoping this is a style of hero that we kind of see fall out of fashion. I'm hoping so, given that I I mentioned it earlier, you have Russell Crowe and Master and Commander just three years after Gladiator. And I think that's actually a much more like a good example of like a much more charismatic, but also flawed and interesting hero to watch. Um, So fingers crossed. Yeah. Looking through the ones that are coming up, I think we'll get more complexity. Anyway, that is Gladiator. Gladiator. So I think next time we are doing uh, the 74th winner, which is A Beautiful Mind. I'm actually quite excited for that one. Another Russell Crowe film. He had a big, he had like a time in the early 2000s. Yeah. Hopefully the next one he's given more material. Yeah. Join us for that. Until then, you can find us on Instagram and the platform formerly known as Twitter at Best Pictures Pod, um, or you can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. Great. Subscribe, review. Uh, join us next time for A Beautiful Mind. <laughs>